Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8. John uh, chapter 8, we're doing a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John, and as we continue in our study of this uh, amazing Gospel, we come this morning to John chapter 8, verse 12, and my goal today is to look at verses uh, 12 through 30. And the title of the message this morning is, Jesus Gets Us. Do we get him? Jesus gets us. Do we get him? In recent months, as many of you know, there has been an advertising campaign about Jesus that uh, showed up during the Super Bowl, I think a couple times, and it's showing up on TV and social media called the He Gets Us campaign. And the purpose of this campaign is to present Jesus as a relatable person who understands and who experienced and who empathizes with human struggles. And in their ads, you will see statements like, Jesus experienced heartbreak too, and Jesus suffered anxiety too, and other statements like this. Some have uh, offered critiques of this campaign, but that is not my intention this morning. I simply want to agree with the fact that Jesus truly does get us, and that is a point worth making. He knows about our anxieties. He knows about our struggles and our loneliness. But there's something else that Jesus also gets about us. And that is our sin and the certainty that we will die in our sins if we do not believe in Jesus for the Savior that he is. And that is a message that we must declare to the world. And this ought to leave us asking the most important question of all, and that is, do we get Jesus? Do we get Jesus? Do we understand and know the truth about him? And have we received him for the Messiah that he is? If we haven't done so, and even if we have done so, we should make it our top priority in life to get him, to understand him. And our passage today is going to help us wonderfully with that. And as we come to understand Jesus, even through our text today, we're going to come to a better understanding of ourselves in the process. Now, at the end of John 7, we saw how the Jewish religious leaders were angry that their orders for the temple officers to arrest Jesus had not been carried out. The temple officers reply to the religious leaders by telling them that no one has ever spoken the way that Jesus speaks. Well, the Pharisees remind these temple officers that they shouldn't be so impressed with Jesus. After all, none of the religious leaders have believed in him. But we saw how Nicodemus spoke up and urged his colleagues to give Jesus a fair hearing before they pass judgment on him. And our passage today represents Jesus giving these very religious rulers a chance to follow Nicodemus's advice. As the verses of our text today unfold, it will become clear to all of us that the people to whom Jesus is speaking, they just don't get him. And we learn that from statements that they make and the questions that they ask about Jesus and even statements John makes about these men in this conversation we will witness today. But despite their stubborn ignorance, Jesus amazingly and graciously keeps engaging with them in a way that ends up yielding what appears to be a good result. In fact, look at verse 30. In verse 30, we read these words, as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. That's a good thing. So reading those words in verse 30, we should be left asking, what were the things that Jesus spoke? 
that caused many to believe in him? This is the question that we will seek to answer today. And if you look at the notes, if you have a hard copy of your notes this morning, the way we'll break down our study of this passage is we will observe six things, six things that Jesus speaks in order to enlighten people regarding the truth about him and about themselves. And the first thing is this, number one, he proclaims that he is the light of the world who can rescue them from darkness. He proclaims that he is the light of the world who can rescue people from darkness. Observe what happens in verse 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Keep in mind that this conversation is happening right after the conclusion of the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, And during the Feast of Tabernacles, the Jews would have what was called a celebration of light. And they would set up four great torches or lamps in the temple that would be uh, set as high as 75 feet in the air in the court of the women. These torches were so large that each of them featured a wick that would emerge from a bowl holding over 17 gallons of oil to burn. And this oil would be replenished each day so that the torches could burn through the night. And drawing from what is said in the Jewish Mishnah, the commentator D.A. Carson says that each night of the Feast of Tabernacles, and I quote here, men of piety and good works would dance through the night under the glow of these massive torches, holding burning torches in their hands and singing songs and praises to God. The Levitical orchestras would play their instruments with the light from the temple area shedding its glow all over Jerusalem, unquote. This celebration of light during the Feast of Tabernacles was in commemoration of the great pillar of fire that once led the children of Israel through the wilderness during their wanderings. And with these celebrations fresh on the minds of the people in the temple on this occasion, Jesus speaks here and says, I am the light of the world. And notice that he doesn't just call himself a light, but the light. In other words, Jesus is claiming to be the ultimate light. And not just the ultimate light, but the ultimate source from which all other legitimate lights derive This is actually a staggering claim for Jesus to make about himself for a couple of reasons. For one, there's a sense in which he is claiming to be the pillar of fire that led the children of Israel through the wilderness and protected them from the surrounding darkness. He's also claiming to be God. Throughout the centuries, the Israelites sang with the psalmist in Psalm 27, 1, singing, Yahweh is my light and my salvation. In the coming age of eternity, Isaiah prophesied to God's people in Isaiah chapter 60, verses 19 and 20, telling them that in that future era, they won't need the sun or the moon for light anymore Because, he says, and I quote, you will have Yahweh for an everlasting light. And here Jesus stands on this day and says to everyone, I am the light of the world. And in speaking this way, he's not only announcing that he is the Messiah, but also that he is Yahweh God. And notice how he speaks of himself here as the light of the world, not just the light of the Jews. People nowadays would like to think that each culture is entitled to follow their own light and to establish their own 
religions. The Jews had their religion and the Greeks had their religions and the Romans had their religions and the Aztecs and the Mayans had theirs and no one should ever presume to say that one religion is better than any other. But this is not the way Jesus thinks or speaks. He says, I am the light of the world. In other words, I am the light of the Jews and of the Gentiles. I am the light that all people in every place all over the globe need. And he goes on to say, he who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Implied in what Jesus says here is a critique of all of us that we must receive. And that critique is that anyone who does not follow Christ is walking in the darkness. And notice how Jesus calls it not just a darkness, but the darkness, a very particular darkness that the whole world is under. Yes, there are many different false religions and secular philosophies in our world that feature many different beliefs, but they are all merely different manifestations of the same darkness that Jesus speaks of as the darkness here. But Jesus says here that the person who follows him will not walk in that darkness but will have instead the light of life. In other words, they will find themselves living in an oasis of light in the midst of a dark world, and they will find sufficient light to be able to walk freely when others who are in the darkness around them are stumbling and injuring themselves and falling to their eternal ruin. And Jesus says that such a person who follows him will have the light of life. In other words, such a person will be in continuous possession of the light, which is Jesus, who gives life to all who follow him. What Jesus is saying here is absolutely wonderful. We should receive his announcement about himself here and the promise that he makes And so should his audience here in John 8. What he's saying here is wonderful. So wonderful that one might wonder if anyone would be so foolish as to not want this light and its benefits. But we don't have to wonder about that for very long, for we see such foolishness on display in the next verse, which causes Jesus to pivot to another line of thought And this brings us to the second thing that Jesus speaks to enlighten people regarding the truth about him and themselves. Number two, he explains the reason his testimony about himself should be received by them as true. Observe in verse 13 how the Pharisees respond to this wonderful declaration that Jesus has just made. So the Pharisees said to him, You are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Seriously? This is how they choose to respond to one of the greatest utterances ever made in human history. Question is, where would they get such a nitpicky line of thinking from? Well, it may surprise you that they actually get it from something Jesus said back in John chapter 5, verse 31, where Jesus says in John 5, 31, if I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Obviously, these Pharisees are misunderstanding what Jesus was intending to say. Back in John 5, 31, Jesus was not at all trying to say that if he ever says anything about himself, then what he says can't therefore be true. His point was that if he were the only one to say something about himself, 
without any other witnesses who could validate his claims about himself, then yeah, people would have every right to view what he's saying about himself as untrue. That's why Jesus goes on in John 5 to say that there are others who testify about him. And those others are God the Father, John the Baptist, and the works that Jesus was performing, and the writings of Moses himself. But these Pharisees are forgetting all that, and they now think that they've caught Jesus in a technicality, which is so ridiculously small-minded of them to focus on that rather than the message that Jesus has just conveyed. So they respond to his claim to be the light of the world by saying to Jesus, you are testifying about yourself, therefore your testimony is not true. Well, observe Jesus' answer in verse 14. Jesus answered and said to them, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. Jesus is saying anything I ever testify about myself is true because I know that I am speaking as one who has come forth from the Father who sent me to say these things and as one who knows that he is heading back to the Father who sent me. Jesus continues in verse 14 saying, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. Interestingly, Jesus first used the past tense in verse 14 to speak of where he came from. But now here he uses the present tense and says, you do not know where I am at the present time continuously coming from and where I am going. His point is not simply that he came from the Father at the outset of his incarnation, but he's also wanting these men to know that in everything he ever speaks in any given moment, Jesus is always speaking as one coming forth from the presence of the Father. And Jesus' point here is that these men he's talking to don't know this which is why they respond to Jesus as if he's testifying about himself alone, rather than realizing that what he's saying comes straight from the Father himself. In verse 15, Jesus says to these Pharisees, you judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. He's saying, you men are judging me based on your own fleshly thinking and fleshly limitations but I am not judging anyone. And in saying what he's saying here, he's pointing back, I think, to what he just said in verse 12 about him being the light of the world. And he's saying, I didn't say anything in the way of judging anyone. I just told you that I am the light of the world and I made a promise for those who follow me. Yet look at what you guys instinctively did in reaction to what I said. You judged me with a judgment that was according to the flesh when I wasn't, in what I said, judging anyone. Now, the truth is that Jesus wasn't. If you look at verse 12, he wasn't judging anyone directly in what he said, but his words did imply a judgment, right? Because his words implied that anyone who does not walk or does not follow him is walking in darkness. And so there's an implied judgment there. So observe what Jesus says in verse 16. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but I and the Father who sent me. He wants them to know that any judgment that he would ever give voice to or any judgment that his words may imply are always absolutely true because it's always Jesus and his Father speaking in tandem with each other. 
And this ought to be obvious enough for these Pharisees to have observed. Look at verses 17 and 18 where Jesus reasons with them from the law. He says, even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself and the father who sent me testifies about me. So there are two people who testify to the truth about Jesus. Jesus testifies and the father testifies. And as we learn back in John 5, the father testifies about Jesus through the Old Testament scriptures, through the miracles that he grants and empowers Jesus to do, and through the witness of John the Baptist, whom he sent. And the result is that Jesus and the Father are always saying the same thing all the time. So the problem here in John 8 is not that Jesus is being unclear, nor is the problem that the Father is failing to provide sufficient testimony to validate the claims that Jesus is making. The problem is with these Pharisees who are challenging Jesus, a problem that Jesus feels burdened to point out to them now, which brings us to the third thing that Jesus speaks to enlighten people regarding the truth about him and themselves. Number three, he tells them that they don't know him nor his father. He tells them flat out that they don't know him nor his father. Observe what happens beginning in verse 19. Jesus' audience hears what Jesus has just said about his father sending him. Then observe how they respond. So they were saying to him, where is your father? These men are not asking Jesus about the location of his heavenly father. They would already know where he's at if if that's who they were talking about and asking about, what they're asking Jesus for here is the whereabouts of his earthly father. Because this is the father they think Jesus is talking about who might be able to bear witness about him, his earthly father, Joseph. So in asking this question, they're already on the wrong footing. So Jesus answers in verse 19, saying to them, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Jesus is saying to them, you cannot know either me nor my father. You can't know one or the other without knowing both. So to know my father is to know me. And to know me is to know my father. And you men right now asking me for the location of my father is an indication that you not only don't know him, but you don't know me. In verse 20, John stops for a moment to give us an idea of where this conversation is taking place and how his audience is responding at this point. In verse 20, John says these words, he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Now, we know from reliable sources that the treasury was in the temple uh, where 13 large treasure chests were located, which was where the people obviously would put their offerings. And these offering receptacles were located in the court of the women which made this area of the temple one of the most highly trafficked areas in the temple compound. And it also happened to be where the religious leaders hung out. They hung out where the money was. So John is telling us that Jesus is in the treasury right now to let us know that he's in a highly populated and trafficked area of the temple that is right under the very noses of the religious authorities, yet John tells us that no one seized him. And the reason no one seized him or arrested him is because his hour had not yet come. His hour for arrest and crucifixion will come in about six months, but not in this moment. 
Even if someone in this crowd wanted to seize or arrest Jesus, they would not be able to and they won't be able to until the exact moment when the Father sovereignly decrees to allow it. So the person in danger in this moment is not Jesus at all, though he is deep inside the belly of the beast here. It's actually his enemies who are in mortal danger. It's actually those he's talking to who are in the real danger, and Jesus is not afraid to tell them so. Which brings us to the fourth thing that Jesus speaks to enlighten people regarding the truth about him and themselves. Number four, he tells them that they will die in their sins unless they believe in him. He tells them that they will die in their sins unless they believe in him. Observe what Jesus does in verse 21. Then he said again to them, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Here in verse 21, Jesus is essentially saying three things about the Pharisees and others like them who are engaging with him right now in conversation. First, after he goes away, they're going to seek him, Jesus says. And in saying this, Jesus could be saying that after I die and am raised and ascended to my Father, you're going to look for me specifically and won't find me. But more likely, Jesus is saying here that after he is gone, these men will go on looking for the real Messiah, whom they think must be someone else, when in fact it was Jesus. But as they go on looking for the real Messiah, they will never be able to find him because Jesus is the real Messiah and they rejected him. And secondly, not only will they fail to find the real Messiah, but Jesus tells them that they will die in their sin. You will notice that the word sin is singular here, speaking of their fundamental sin of unbelief in Jesus. Yes, there are many other sins that these men are guilty of, but all of their many and varied sins spring from this polluted fountainhead of their unbelief. And third, as for where they go after they die in their sin. Jesus says, where I am going, which is heaven, you cannot come. Jesus is literally telling these Pharisees that they will die in their sin and will not be able to come to heaven after they die. This is really straight talk from Jesus to men who are right now lost. And he gives them very specifically, the bad news that they need to hear. And by the way, you and I should follow his example and do exactly the same thing. When we evangelize the lost, we must tell them the truth that apart from Jesus, they will die in their sin and they will not be able to go to heaven unless they believe in Jesus. Now, you will recall back in chapter 7 that when Jesus spoke about his going away to a place where they could not come, his listeners wondered aloud in chapter 7, verse 35, if he was intending to go to the Gentiles and teach Gentiles. But after hearing Jesus say basically the same thing Again, their minds go to another possibility, and in this case, a much darker one. Observe what Jesus' listeners do in verse 22. So the Jews, and often in John's gospel, the Jews, is speaking of the Jewish religious leaders, were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. They're getting a little closer 
to the truth. In understanding Jesus to be talking about his death, only they're wondering if Jesus is planning to commit suicide, which is a serious crime in the law. But this is not obviously what Jesus is talking about, and you and I know that. He will not be killing himself, but you know what? He will be voluntarily surrendering his life in death upon a cross for the salvation of sinners like us. It seems that Jesus hears what these men are saying and observes that, once again, they don't understand what he's talking about. So he offers this further explanation in verses 23 and 24, where he absolutely could not be more clear. In fact, it's almost as if he begins to speak in an elementary school level kind of way that even a child could understand. Look at verses 23 to 24. And he was saying to them, you are from below, I am from above, you are of this world, I am not of this world, therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Notice how this is now the second and the third time that Jesus tells them that they will die in their sins. And notice how Jesus uses the plural form of the word for sin now. Speaking of sins, plural, and all of their varied and ugly manifestations spewing forth from this single fountainhead of unbelief. But notice how Jesus offers a ray of hope this time, identifying the one and only way that they can avoid dying in their sins, and that is by believing in him. That's really good news. You don't have to die in your sins. You can believe in Jesus and be spared that fate. And look very carefully at how Jesus says this in verse 24. He says, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now, in some of your translations, you will notice that the word he is in italics, meaning that it is not in the Greek text. That said, I think it's good to put the word he here because it captures at least a part of what Jesus is trying to convey. At the very least, Jesus is saying here, unless you believe that I am he, in other words, unless you believe that I am the Messiah, you will die in your sins. That said, literally, the text has Jesus saying this, for unless you believe that I am you will die in your sins. And the Greek for I am is ego eimi. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And I think we have to understand Jesus to be referring to himself here as the I am, which means Yahweh, Jehovah, God himself. When God called Moses to go and bring his people out of Egypt, God said to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, I am who I am. And then God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. In the Greek Old Testament of Isaiah 41, 4, God says, I, Yahweh, am the first and with the last, ego eimi. I am, Yahweh says. In Isaiah 43.10, God is speaking to Israel and he says, You are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen, 
in order that you may know and believe me and understand that ego me. In order that you may know and believe and understand that I am, Jehovah says. And here in John chapter 8, verse 24, in our passage today, Jesus uses very similar language and says to the Jews, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. It's a staggering thing for Jesus to speak of himself in this way, in this passage. And it seems that at least some people in Jesus' audience are beginning to get a whiff of what he's trying to say about himself, which makes them want further clarification, which Jesus will be happy to provide them. This brings us to the fifth thing that Jesus speaks to enlighten people regarding the truth about him and themselves. Number five, he instructs them to look to his words in order to know who he is. He instructs them to look to his words in order to know who he is. So keep in mind, Jesus has just said, unless you believe that I am or I am he, you will die in your sins And that leaves the Jews to whom he is speaking with a question. Look at verse 25. So they were saying to him, who are you? In all likelihood, some are asking him this question because they missed his point and they don't know who he is. But some are asking this because they're dumbfounded at what he has just hinted at. So their question is basically, so who are you? Who are you saying that we have to believe that you are? Observe Jesus' answer in the middle of verse 25. Jesus said to them, what have I been saying to you from the beginning We can understand what Jesus says here in verse 25 as either a statement or a question, and either way, his point is the same. Jesus is holding these men accountable for the fact that they ought to already know who he is if they were listening to the words that he has been speaking to them, both from the beginning of this conversation and from the very beginning of his public ministry. But they're hearing him telling them who he is, and they won't believe it. I remember when I was in high school, um, we had a substitute teacher come in one day, um, and she started the class by saying, I don't have the roll book with me, so what I'm going to do is I'll just write your names on a piece of paper, and then I'll give it to your teacher um, tomorrow so that your teacher will know that you were here. So she started going down the rows, and when she got to me, she said, what's your name? And I said, Milton. And she said, no, seriously, Uh, what's your name? And I said, it's Milton. And she scolded me. She said, don't mess with me, young man, or I'll tell your teacher. And I said, no, it really is Milton. And she still didn't believe me until the guy sitting behind me spoke up and said, his name really is Milton. And then she felt really stupid and finally wrote my name down and recorded my attendance. So she wasn't listening to what I was saying. She couldn't believe that someone would be named Milton. And on some level, that's what's happening here. They're listening to what Jesus is revealing about himself which are wonderful and amazing things. And they're still asking, who are you? Who are you? And so Jesus essentially says to them here, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? Look back on all that I have said up to this point, and you will have all the wisdom you need to know who I am. So why would you ask me who I am when I've been repeatedly telling you who I am? 
Guys, one big takeaway for us here is this. If you want to know who Jesus is, you don't need to listen to what other people say about him. Jesus says right here that all you need to do is listen to the words that he speaks about himself and allow his own words to shape your view of him. That's what Jesus wants you to do, and that's what he wants his audience to do here. And one might get the impression from what Jesus has just said in verse 25 that he's done saying anything new to these men. But thankfully, this is not the case. In verse 26, he says, look at what he says. He says, I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. Jesus is saying, I have a lot more to say to you about myself and many more words of incisive judgment to speak regarding you. But before I say them, I want you to know that the Father who sent me is true. And I want you to know that when I speak these words to you, I will only be speaking what I hear him telling me to say. So any words that you hear coming out of my mouth, I want you to know that those words come straight from God, the Father himself. And I want you to know that these words are not just for you, but they're for the whole world to hear. And with that brief introduction, Jesus then proceeds to speak an absolute mouthful, which brings us to the sixth and final thing that he speaks, at least at this stage of this conversation, to enlighten people regarding the truth about him and themselves. Number six, he predicts when they will know the full truth about them. He predicts or he announces when they will know the full truth about him. Here's how clueless these men are who are listening to Jesus. They hear Jesus speak about the one who sent him. They hear him tell how he only speaks what he hears this one who sent him saying. And then John tells us in verse 27, they did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the father, the ultimate father, God, the father. And so amazingly in His gracious condescension, Jesus utters a prophecy regarding when they will know the absolute truth about him and his father. Observe what he says in in verse 28. So Jesus said, when you lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and I do nothing of my own initiative, but I speak these things as the father taught me. There's so much that Jesus reveals about himself here. First of all, he speaks of himself as the son of man, which is one of the most exalted titles that Jesus uses in the gospels to refer to himself. This title takes us back to Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14, where Daniel speaks of the son of man coming up to the ancient of days and being presented before the ancient of days. And then Daniel says in Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, listen to these words. And to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And Jesus is saying here in John 8, that's me. I am the son of man. Saying to his audience, when you lift up the son of man, then you will know that I am he. The lifting up that Jesus is speaking of here is a reference to him being lifted up on the cross in death. And we know this because John will tell us later In John chapter 12, verses 32 and 33, that when Jesus speaks of himself as being lifted up 
He is speaking of, and I'm quoting from John, the kind of death by which he was to die. And John says those words in John 12, 32 and 33. So Jesus is saying here, when you lift up the Son of Man in death upon the cross, then you will know that I am he. And once again, depending on the translation you are using, some of you probably have already noticed that the word he is in italics, meaning that the word he is not in the Greek text, though its meaning is very likely implied. But literally, we could translate Jesus as saying in verse 28, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. This is yet another one of the great I am statements of Jesus in John's gospel. Jesus is telling his audience that when they lift him up in death upon a cross, that will set in motion a chain of events that will leave them with the certain knowledge that Jesus is the Son of Man and the great I Am. And if they do not realize that in this life, they will certainly realize it when they stand before Jesus in glory and are forced to bow the knee and confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord and the great I Am. Let's look again at what Jesus says as he continues. In verse 28, he says, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And he's basically saying, And you will know that I do nothing of my own initiative, but you will know that I speak these things as the Father taught me. Even though Jesus is the Son of Man of Daniel's vision, And even though he is the great I am, Jesus is assuring his audience that one day they will know that he never did anything of his own initiative, but that he only spoke those things that the Father taught him. He's promising them that one day they will know that Jesus always operated in full submission to his Father in every word he ever spoke. And as for his relationship with the Father, here's something else that is true of him that they will one day know on the other side of the cross. If not in this life and the life to come, they will know this. He says in verse 29, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus is saying one day you will know that it was the Father who sent me and that he never left me alone for one second and you will know that he never left me alone because, look at the end of verse 29, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. That's one of the most amazing statements in John's gospel. Jesus saying, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Wow. Who could ever talk this way? I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Always? Can any of you say this about yourself? I can't. I can't say this about the most godly hour I've ever lived. But Jesus can, and he does speak this way about the entirety of his life. And it's not arrogant for him to speak this way because it's the truth. Even in saying this, he's saying exactly what his father wants him to say. And it's the truth. But what an amazing truth this is about Jesus. You can write down the reference, Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20 where Solomon says, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Even worse, the psalmist says in more than one place, there is none good, not even one. But Jesus, he says, I always do the things that are pleasing to my Father. Always. Without fail, in every circumstance, perfectly, in every moment, and in every way. 
And is every thought and every word and every deed from his earliest days as a child and then all the way to the cross, Jesus always did those things that were pleasing to his father. And it is because he did that that his father was always with him and happily working in unison together with Jesus in everything that Jesus ever said and everything that he ever did. These are amazing truth bombs that Jesus is dropping on his audience, declaring truth about himself and about them. And wonderfully, look at how some people respond to all that Jesus has just said in these verses. Jesus has been engaging directly with the Pharisees and other religious leaders, no doubt in full view of a watching audience that he has been teaching there in the treasury. And it seems that many are being impacted by what he has said. In verse 30, John says, as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. These people don't even want to wait until Jesus is lifted up on a cross to believe in him, nor do they need Jesus to do some miracle before they choose to believe in him. They're simply hearing Jesus say the words that he has been saying in this conversation, and they're so impressed with the authority and the power and the truth of what Jesus is saying that they are right now coming to a place of believing in him. And what's remarkable about their belief in him is that Jesus has said some pretty hard truths about those that he's engaging with here. And it seems that they received those hard words and believed in him. In fact, think about what Jesus has said in these verses about his listeners. He's told them that they're going to walk in darkness unless they follow him. He has told them that they cannot get to heaven where he is going. And he's told them three times that they're going to die in their sins unless they believe in him. And as for believing in him, Jesus has told them many things about himself in this passage. He's offered himself to these members of this audience as the light of the world. He's promised them that if they follow him, they won't walk in darkness, but have the light of life. He's told them that he's from above, that he's not of this world. He's told them that he is the son of man and the great I am. He has told them that his being lifted up on a cross will reveal the truth about him. And he has told them that everything he ever says comes straight from the Father who sent him and to whom he will return one day. And he has told them that he perfectly pleases the Father always. And thankfully, there were many people in this audience who embraced what Jesus said about them and what he said about himself and they came to faith in him. They realized that Jesus truly gets them. And they allowed Jesus' words to bring them to a place where they now get him. And they came to believe in him as the savior that they needed. So how about you this morning? Do you get Jesus? Do you realize that he is on to you and he truly gets you? Do you realize that if you want to know the truth about Jesus, the best place to get your view of Jesus is from the words that Jesus speaks about himself? Do you realize that the best way for you to arrive at a proper view of yourself is to 
listen to the words that Jesus speaks about you? Will you believe that? And will you embrace the fact that Jesus is the light of the world that you need? Will you believe the promise that if you follow him, you won't walk in darkness, but you will have the light of life? Will you believe Jesus when he tells you that you will die in your sins unless you believe that he is who he says he is in this passage? I hope that you will believe in him. In fact, I plead with you to believe in Jesus. And if you have never called on his name for salvation, that you would come to Jesus this morning and cry out to him, call upon his name and believe in him for the Savior God that he is. If you do believe in Jesus then you will not die in your sins. In fact, you will be able to go to heaven after you die and be with Jesus in heaven. And even in the here of now, here and now, you will have each day the light of life to relish and to walk in. After all, he is the light of the world, amen? And in this dark world that grows ever darker, there's nothing that you and I need more than Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, we're so thankful for the opportunity this morning to just be bystanders and listen in on this intense and energetic exchange that takes place between Jesus and these religious rulers to hear him speaking with such honesty and heavy truth about themselves but also to hear him speak about himself without apology we're struck by the audacity of the way he speaks about himself. He is either who he claims to be or he is an imposter of the worst sort. And even as this chapter unfolds, there are people listening to what Jesus is saying who are going to understand that. And they're not just going to conclude that he's not who he says he is, but they will conclude and they will tell him so, you have a demon. But our options are very limited, Lord. Jesus is either who he says he is or he has a demon. But no one speaks like he speaks. No one speaks with the authority and the truth and the power and the love like he speaks. No one has other witnesses that verify and validate the words that he speaks about himself like Jesus does. He has the Father validating his testimony through the miracles that the Father empowered him to perform Jesus has John the Baptist bearing witness regarding him. And Jesus has the Old Testament scriptures that again and again point to him and validate the claims he makes about himself. And Jesus also has the witness of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of men and women as the Spirit bears witness speaking to the hearts of people, saying what he's saying is true. And so we receive what you reveal in this passage today about yourself, Lord. I pray that you would help us as a congregation, Lord, to get caught up, to get swept up in the larger story of what you're doing in the world 
that we would be excited at the truth that Jesus is indeed the light of the world and being the light of the world, if we can follow him and walk with him and if we can hold his name high and proclaim him, then we will exude the light of Christ that you have saved us to deliver. Help us this week, Lord, to speak often of you and to point people to you. May you, Lord, fill our hearts and touch us deeply as we walk in your light to where we cannot but speak of you to others that your light may shine upon them as well. And if there's any, Lord, in this room this morning that have been walking in darkness, may they know that they're right on the edge of light. All they need to do is come to you this morning and believe in you, and they will have the light of life. You are that good, and you will be pleasured to give that light, that salvation, that deliverance from their sins to them. We ask all of these things, Lord, in the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said,